Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, host and creator of the Right Fit Method, the key to professional and personal success. Now, let's join Dr. Arlene. Thank you for joining us today for the 80th episode of Win Without Competing. Recognized for high-quality content, it is a featured show on Blog Talk Radio. I frequently meet teenagers and young adults who feel lost. They lack the decision-making tools to manage their personal life, education, and career planning. The seeds of personal and professional success are planted and rooted in childhood. If the right seeds are properly planted and rooted, then teenagers and young adults will exude self-confidence, manage the process to take charge of their daily life, use the essence of who they are to express their attitudes and values to function effectively, raise the bar to compete with themselves to achieve specific goals, make right-fit decisions using blueprints to define right-fits, right-fit school, right career, right job, right friend, right girlfriend or boyfriend, and so on. If the wrong seeds are planted and rooted in childhood or the right seeds are not rooted, it is highly likely that the right fit tools will need to be learned later in life. I created the right fit method, the subject of my book, Win Without Competing, to provide those right fit tools. In the world of the right fit method, The standard of best does not exist. All decisions are based on the standard of the right fit. Shortly, you will learn more about this. Until now, I have primarily focused on mentoring adults and consulting with businesses on how to use my unique set of life-changing branding strategies to identify, capture, and retain right fits. Results? Unparalleled career, business, and personal success. I dedicate today's show to those who have been searching to exit from their personal world of indecision and those who are longing to make positive changes to achieve the right results. On to my guest, Lucia Lombardo, a teenager making right-fit decisions. My guest today is 16-year-old Lucia Lombardo, who mastered the art of making right-fit decisions by age 10. I searched for a teenager who naturally uses my right-fit method to share her success story to motivate, inspire, and encourage others to explore a new way of making decisions. Join us for a thought-provoking conversation for teenagers, young adults, and their parents. Welcome, Lucia, to Win Without Competing. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Dr. Barrow. It is my pleasure. You were born and brought up in Atlanta, Georgia. Your father, Tom Lombardo, is the founding editor-in-chief of WebMD. A recognized poet and poetry editor, Lombardo is the author of the recently released poetry book, What Bends Us Blue, and editor of Aftershocks, The Poetry of Recovery for Life-Shattering Events, an anthology featuring 115 poets from 15 nations. Your mother, Hope Lukazima, named by Multimedia Magazine as one of the top 100 multimedia producers in the U.S., 
is the vice president of Mother Nature Network, the web's largest environmental site. Formerly, Lucasema was the vice president of community and social networking at WebMD. Your younger brother, Sam, an avid tennis player, is 14. Your home environment serves as an incubator for you to learn how to make right-fit decisions. Tell us how your parents raised you as a young adult. Well, I would say that my dad was more of a hands-on teacher. It started when I was very young. Whenever I'd go to the grocery store with him, he'd always call the cashiers by their first names. And because of that, I grew up just thinking that's what everyone did, which I found out later wasn't. So that was something he really taught me, just humility and how to act nice to everyone, even if they're not like you. Also, from when I was able to comprehend more complicated words, he sat the New York Times down in front of me one morning and told me, read this so that I can educate myself about the world. And ever since that day, I've tried to read the New York Times every morning. Uh, From that to helping me set up my first bank account when I was eight, when I came into some money, uh, he really tried to stress the importance of saving money for my future. On the opposite side, my mom was more of a silent teacher. She kind of taught me the littler things, how to go about making rational decisions, how to prioritize. She was, she was more the, the yin to his yang. And I think that the two sides of this teaching have really helped me today. Now, I'm eager to hear about the money, how you came into money. That sounds good to me. Um, how old were you when you came into money? Um, I was eight years old, and I actually found a neighbor's cat, and they gave me $100 as a reward. It was the most amount of money I had ever had in my entire life at one time, um, probably ever. Um, and so my dad told me to go set up my first bank account. And I think you needed $60 back then to set up an account. So I donated $40 to the Atlanta Humane Society, and I used the other 60 to set up my very first savings account, and I still have it to this day. Now, I'm sure the amount of money there has grown. Am I correct? Yes. <laughs> Good. Now, your parents, I believe, from what we've discussed before, have instilled certain kinds of attitudes and values. Uh, tell us about your first job and how old you were. Yes, this is when I was about 10 years old, and my mother would always take my brother and I to farmer's markets on Saturday morning, so it was a big part of our, of our family routine. And there were, uh, we, we, all the farmers knew us because we were there every weekend, and one day one of the farmers asked me to step into the booth for a few minutes to watch it while he could go off somewhere. And I was, I've always been good with adding numbers in my head, giving change, so it wasn't too hard for me to do that. And from that day, he decided to hire me on as a helper at his booth. And I started working at the market. I worked there for two or three years. And by that point, I'd become his only helper. And when he moved markets to a larger one, I moved with him. Again, I worked two more seasons there. This was, um, by this time, I was about 14. And he unexpectedly left the market at the end of the season. But because I'd already built up a customer base, and I knew all the vendors, they knew me, I was able to email the director of the market and ask for a new position. And because of that, on the same day, I was placed with a new farmer who I've been with for the last two years. You know, it's really wonderful how you developed your job, because that's in essence what you did, correct? Yes. Explain a little bit more about it, about how customers knew you and what your parents taught you about interacting with people. Because I think that's very important and has really helped you on your own personal development and figuring out who you are, because you like who they are and you want to be like them. Am I correct? Yes. I can tell. Yes. Yes. Um, Like I said, both my parents, you know, taught me humility, how to be respectful to others. So it was pretty easy for me, you know, to connect with the customers. Uh, They're not just someone buying produce or buying flowers, you know. They're also someone coming into the booth to be social for a few minutes. And so, 
using, you know, my my social skills that I learned from my parents. I was able to talk with them, learn about them. They were able to learn about me. Um, we got to the point where when I switched vendors, they automatically knew me. They'd come in and say, oh, I know you. You used to work at this other vendor's booth. Uh, so it really helped, actually, my new boss. I brought her a lot of his old customers because they, they knew me and they followed me. Well, that's terrific that you brought the old customers to follow yes. you. Could you remember their names, Lucy? Uh, they've changed over they've changed over the years. Um uh the some of some of the original there was a a Pat who was a, a woman and there were there was a couple from Bulgaria. I forget their names now. Uh they don't come to the market anymore. Uh but they were they were very big customers. Uh, okay. I think those, yes, those were those were some of the ones that were there every single week, and that followed me still, over. Are you still working there? I am. I still work at the market. And you're still enjoying it as much as you have been enjoying it. Even more so every week. That's interesting. Do you know why you're enjoying it more? What what about it is is intriguing you? Because it's really setting the stage in terms of getting along with people in the future. In a, in a job situation. Definitely. I mean, by this point, I've formed such social relations with all of the vendors and most of the customers. It's almost like a second family. Uh, I call my, my boss my market mother, and I, re- I really do mean it. And it really it really is like a second family to me. I, I look forward to going there because, you know, not not every teenager works at a farmer's market on the weekends, and I love being able to tell people that that's what I do because it, it's it's different. <clears throat> and it's giving me social skills that I wouldn't necessarily get if I was working as a bagger at Publix or, or Kroger. Now, you don't feel bad that you don't have time to spend with your friends. In other words, you, you have selected as the right fit working in the farmer's market. So that's yes. that's your choice, of course. Yes, definitely. And I, I've had friends come visit me at the market. Um, I, can't, I, you know, I can't really interact with them in a friendly way when I'm working, but they like seeing me in my element. Um, in your element? Too, <laughs> yes, in my element. <laughs> um, okay. And, um, it, it doesn't take up too much of my time. It runs... I get there around 7.30 in the morning, and I leave about 12.30 on Saturdays. And so I still have time in the afternoon and on weekdays, and they understand that I can't stay too late at a friend's house on a Friday night, and I can't have a sleepover at a friend's house during market season on a Friday night. Uh, They all understand that, and they respect that. Well, that's good. It sounds like you're highly organized. I try. I can tell. Take us back to age six. You met the mayor of Atlanta at a uh, neighbor's yes. home. What yeah. happened? Okay, so this was the evening of Halloween, and my neighbors always threw an annual chili party at their house where they invited some of the bigger political uh, members from the uh, political scene in Atlanta. And my parents always went over, and this was the first time they were letting me go because it didn't start until 8, and at the time, 8 was way past my bedtime. So as you can imagine, I was very excited. Um, so my mom took me over, and I was aware that the mayor was going to be at the house, uh, but I was not aware that I was going to be meeting her, and if so, when I would be meeting her. So I, I walk in the front door, and my neighbors actually introduced me to the mayor. But of course, at the time, I didn't know it was the mayor. So to me, it was just some random person I didn't know that I was being introduced to. So they said, you know, Lucy, this is Shirley Franklin, uh, who was the mayor at the time of Atlanta. And in my six-year-old mind, I thought Franklin, and, and the only political figure that I could think of with the last name as Franklin was Ben Franklin. So without even really thinking about any further than that, I just blurted out, you're still alive? Really loudly, and everyone heard me. Uh, because, I mean, Ben Franklin is obviously not alive. Um, and in doing that, I I'd committed multiple faux pas. First, I didn't know she was the mayor. Um, and also, I I'd, I'd, you know made a reference to her age and th- that she looked old, which she didn't. But <laughs> it might have come across as that. 
And uh, there, were, there was a bit of an uncomfortable silence, and then my neighbors, you know, kind of laughed it off. She was very nice about it. Uh, I think my mom was embarrassed. But, you know, my mom, she never explained to me that it had been the mayor. I think she assumed that I knew it was and that I just made a careless error. And I actually didn't realize it was the mayor until years later when I was doing a project on her. And I happened to run across a photo on Google. And then I I thought, oh, my gosh, that was the lady that I met, you know, when I was six at the Halloween party. And then I was embarrassed all over again. Um, But uh, that that experience definitely taught me, you know, how to act in social situations when you're not sure who the person is. You know, don't blurt out the first thing that comes to mind. Well, and also, too, you made an erroneous assumption. I I made a, a huge assumption. And it's not good to do that in social situations where you don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> well, in to. all situations, and we'll talk more situations. about that later, yeah, we don't really want to make assumptions because, especially in this situation where you're looking at a woman and you're thinking about a man who died a long time ago. Right, and so, that was even worse. I didn't even consider the gender when I blurted it out. I know, I know. So this poor woman was probably thinking, gee, I wonder what, what's in her little mind there. But obviously exactly. she didn't probe, correct? No, she didn't. Uh, I think she had other people to meet. She was kind of, you know, the um, the queen of the evening. Everyone wanted to meet her. Well, I guess you became the little princess of the evening then. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure I was the most memorable person that she met that night. <laughs> I'm positive myself. When you were 10, your parents wanted to enroll you in a private school. You had created a blueprint of a right fit school. Tell us about that blueprint and then we can visit the school through your eyes and visualize what you saw and what you thought. Yes, okay, this was when I was leaving elementary school and going into middle school. And my parents had decided they would let me go to private school if that's what I wanted. And before visiting any private or public schools, I had basically set up a a checklist, a blueprint in my mind of what I wanted. Um, I definitely, the atmosphere of the school is very important to me. Um, I love diversity within the student body. So I didn't want students that seemed like they were stereotypes of each other, like they were all just carbon copies. Um, I, I, I didn't really want a dress code or a uniform because of that, because I wanted to be able to see um, how people dressed as, as as an extension of their personality. And I definitely wanted different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, different life stories. I wanted all of that in a school. And I think that really adds to the environment. Um, I especially didn't want the atmosphere to feel uppity or entitled at all, like they had a lot of money, um, or like they didn't necessarily need me to go there because they could find 10 other students that would be just as qualified. Uh, So before I even looked at any schools, I already had this basic blueprint in my mind of what I wanted and what I didn't want, because it's a huge decision to decide which school to go to. Now, when you went to a particular school, I know you visited more than one private school, but there was one school that your parents, I believe, really liked, and we're hoping that you would like it as well. Tell us about the one that they liked and what you felt and what you saw when you visited there. Definitely, yes. Uh, So this particular private school had sort of um, an open fair day where there would be students taking the prospective students around the school, letting them sit in classrooms, learning about the history of the school. And there was also going to be a fair of all the clubs and sports that the school offered that the parents could go to, learn about the school, you know, how it raised money, things like that. So I went and I first went around with a student guide and, you know, met other students, sat in classrooms, you know, walked down the hallways. And from the first 10 minutes, I realized that I just wasn't feeling it. Um, for starters, the the kids that the school had picked to take the tours, you know, all looked like carbon copies. They they basically embodied all the stereotypes that I did not want. Speaking from a purely uh, physical view of, of their looks, you know, all the girls had the straightened hair and the immaculate uniforms, and all the boys had that pre-Justin Bieber haircut, 
you know, in their khaki pants uh, with too much hair gel, and they all look the same. Um, and also, you know, going around to the classrooms, walking down the hallways, I realized, you know, how much money the school had and how much they were just flaunting it, basically saying we can get whatever we want. Um, even in middle school, I mean, the computer labs, the science labs were enormous, very intimidating. Uh, so that that was already a few uh, points off from, from my blueprint. And then I went to the fair, and, I, I mean, there were – so many clubs and sports that I'm that I hadn't even heard of, wouldn't even want to be interested in. I mean, I don't really care about joining, you know, um, the the crew team as a sixth grader. I mean, that's just not not really going to happen. And I don't understand why a middle school would have to have something like that. So it was it was just things like that that really set off alarm bells in my mind. All right. So now, what did you tell your parents, and how did they respond? Because earlier I made a point of explaining that from when you were a small child, they treated you as a young adult. So Yes, yes. So what happened when you basically, first of all, what did you tell them, and how did they respond? Uh, so after after going to the fair, uh, my parents had cooled off a few degrees in terms of sending me to that particular school, but they were still definitely willing. So I knew that you know even as a rising sixth grader that that I had to kind of tread a little more carefully because they were definitely willing to send me there. Uh, so I basically outlined for them what I didn't like. And my parents also like diversity, and they do they do take my opinion very highly because, like I said, from a very young age, they taught me to be independent, how to form my own opinions. They've always treated me like a young adult. So I was really included in the discussions about money and about which school to go to. And I basically just told them about the blueprint, things that I hadn't liked, and as I was telling them, they were thinking, oh, you know, I noticed that too. So by, by the end of the conversation – They'd heard my points, and I think that they were relieved that they would be off the hook for paying a private school education, um, mostly. Okay, all right. Now, it's six years later, and you have been going into a public Atlanta school, right, Lucy? Yes. All right. Did you select the right fit school? And then we're going to talk about what this school is like. Yes, I have I have never regretted it, not even for a second. Um I feel like I'm a much more well-rounded person. I feel like my friends are way more diverse. I feel like I've learned so many things about social situations and about life more than just what you can learn from a textbook. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I'd gone to the private school. Um I love I love being able to walk down the hallway and see someone new every single day. My school has about 1,800 students, give or take. So it's rather large. And even as a junior, I can walk down the hallway and see someone new every single day. That's amazing to me. And I love that we don't have uniforms so I can see people's personalities through their clothing. And I've gotten used to being in all different sorts of situations in school and how to deal with them and how to carry myself around students and teachers. So in terms of the diversity, can you give us a little bit more of a picture of what that's all about in terms of what goes on? Yes, definitely. So so you do have, in every school you have, you know, the kids that are extremely bound for success. They have a future plan, a life goal. They know exactly what they're doing. You know, high school is just another check on their blueprint for life. Um, and then, then you definitely have the kids who are slacking off, who are only there because they have to be, um, people that haven't really planned anything out. Uh, you definitely have, you know, the drugs, the alcohol, the sex, the illegal influences. Um, but I, I've managed to stay above all that um, just by surrounding myself with, with good friends and by gaining the respect of my classmates. You know, by by acting modest, not trying to help them out, act like a you know a condescending friend, um, and and in doing that, I've been able to make friends with 
all different types of people that go to my school, and they all respect me. And I try to gain the respect of them and my teachers, and I feel like that really helps me in my learning environment at the school. At age 16, approaching 17 shortly, you know your personal brand. At my suggestion, you wrote a paragraph describing who you are. I quote, I try to be as unbiased as possible when examining a situation and be open when a friend or acquaintance comes to me for advice. Pick a situation that you have examined and walk us through how you arrived at your advice. Okay, so in high school, you know, you do get a lot more serious situations that, that come to your attention. Um, and this certain situation, this was a few months ago, and I had a friend come to me. She had just started dating this boy, and she liked him for a very long time. And she wasn't sure when to move on sexually with him. It was her first real boyfriend, so she didn't really have a whole lot of experience in dating, let alone high school dating, which I believe has its own set of rules. And so she she didn't know what to do in terms of that. She was a little bit worried that she would be going into something too quickly or too slowly. And above all else, she didn't want to lose the boyfriend because it was her first real boyfriend and she really liked him. Uh, so basically what I did was I sat down with her. We went through the pros and cons. I tried to get her opinion about it. Um, in these situations, I try not to put in my own opinion at all. Um, I try not. I try to be very unbiased, like I wrote in my personal brand. I try to hear them out, hear what they're saying, think about it from their point of view, and then offer a suggestion. I never tell them what to do because at the end of the day, it's their decision, not mine. And it's more of a courtesy than them coming to me. Uh, so in this particular situation, we talked initially. Um, and we talked multiple times after that for the next few weeks and months. And, you know, she ended up cooling things off because she came to the conclusion that things had been going a little bit too fast for her. And I, I think that if we hadn't had the talk, she may have gotten herself into a situation rather soon where she would have looked back and been very uncomfortable and thought, you know, that was, that was a huge mistake. And that's what I try to do. Um, is, is to help people think things through. Um, you know, sometimes at the end of a discussion, they're even more confused than they were when we started talking. But I'd rather them be more confused because they know more about the situation than go into something that they don't know enough about. So I think that's really my approach to helping my friends. When they come back to you, okay, which I expect they do, according to what we've talked about before, do they seem appreciative of you taking your time to chat with them? You know, I, I definitely think so, because not all of my friends, you know, will hear them out and be unbiased. You know, a lot of people will just will listen to a minute of it and say, oh, you know, that's stupid. Why would you even do that? Why would you even think about doing that? And, you know, that, that if you hear that coming from a friend, that kind of quiets you, and then you don't want to talk about it anymore, even though it's still just as big of a deal as it had been five minutes earlier. Uh, so, I mean, I definitely encourage follow-up discussions because you can't solve anything with one talk. Um, and definitely with the more sensitive situations, I try and just talk one-on-one. -on -one. I'd never bring it up in a group setting unless the the person, the subject of the talks, brings it up themselves, um, and I'll only discuss it if I know that the group I'm with knows about the situation. Um, and I think that just these basic things, you know, me trying to be unbiased, respecting their privacy, I think is what's really earned me the respect of my friends, and that's the reason why they come to me. I know that you've had some experiences with people coming to you that have cut themselves, and you had told me that those kinds of conversations started when you were in middle school. So obviously at a young age, you started in as an advisor here. So yeah. tell me about that, how you advise them, and what was the impact of your advice from your perspective? Uh, yeah, like I said, again, with the more with the more you know serious situations like self harm, it is a longer process. Uh, more discussions, more more work, more help on my part. 
Um, yeah, I, I started in middle school right um, between sixth and seventh grade, and you know, over the years, I've talked to a, a good number, um, not too much that I'm, you know, sad and depressed about the state of the teenage population, but enough that I feel like I've heard it all, and because of that, I'm able to give better advice. Um, and like I said, it is a longer process. So it's definitely not something, it's not like I'm going to go to them and say, you know, let's let's get to the root of the problem, let's talk about why you do this, and then the next week they're going to stop. Because that's never what happens. You know, it takes weeks, it takes months, it even takes a year, more than a year. Uh, but what I really do try to do is figure out if it's, you know, a home problem, a school problem, or a friend problem. Because it generally falls into one of those or more of those three categories. And then depending on the category, yes? In your opinion, what do you see it as primarily? Um, I I generally see it as a combination of family. Family almost always factors in. I don't don't know. I've had maybe one or two people that have come to me who have been self-harming, who have been in perfect home environments. There's almost always a home factor involved. Um, Because I think to most people, you know, they say home is where the heart is. And if there's a problem there, that generally is is bigger, is a bigger problem to most teenagers than a problem at school would be because they wouldn't take that as seriously uh, because it's not family. Um, But also friend problems and boyfriend problems, girlfriend problems are included in that. Relationship problems are major as well. Um, and, And depending on the situation, you know, if it's a home problem, I can't just say go talk to your parents because the the reason why you know, they're self-harming is because they can't talk to their parents or so they don't want to. So I, I definitely give radically different advice depending on what I think the root of the problem is. Do you find that some of these same people keep coming back to you, Lucy, to to continue the dialogue? Oh, I think definitely. They come back to me. Um, I mean, and I'm not going to say that every time I've talked to someone about self-harm, they've stopped. I mean, it's definitely not a 100% success rate, but at least I've made them more aware of the situation, and they feel like someone cares, especially in these situations. You know, if they feel like someone cares, you're already halfway there, and I really do care. I'm not just saying that to them to make them stop. I really do care, and I really do care about them because they're my friends. Um, but definitely, and they'll come back to me for different, with different problems in different situations because they know that they had success talking to me with a previous one. Well, it also sounds to me that because you're unbiased, you almost sound like an attorney about being able to look at all the sides of the situation mm-hmm. and help them see the different perspectives and from there, you then unfold. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes, pretty much. Okay, all right. So you believe that this has been advantageous to both you and them, I'm gathering. Yeah, I, I would definitely say so. I, I get a lot out of out of discussing things with them. Okay. So is that because you're learning something? Definitely. And again, you know, it helps me in future social situations, in future, you know, environments that I'll be in. And so all the while, you know, I'm building myself as well as them. So I'd say it's it's beneficial on both sides. Okay. To succeed in both your personal and professional life, you need the right fit tools to make the right decisions to achieve the right results. Sometimes, even though you may do the right things, You do not achieve the right results. Why? You might have made an erroneous assumption. For example, you had a job interview and didn't get the job. You later learn that someone inside the company got the job. Do not assume that every advertised job is available. Lucy, you figured out the right fit career, college, and pathway to success. You have a plan. Tell us about that. 
All right. So right now my plan is to uh, work in international relations overseas, be it for a private company or a public company. Uh, the the public company would be the State Department. Private company would be you know an overseas business uh, or company that deals in uh, media or communications of some sort. And in order to prepare for that, I've been taking languages at my school, and I've been taking as many advanced classes that deal in history and comparative government, politics, um, learning about the U.S. government as well as other governments. Um, I've, I've also, um, I recently spent about 10 days at Georgetown University doing a program in international relations. And I'm looking forward to actually interning next summer in an embassy abroad. So I'm really trying to, to put myself in the situation that I could potentially be in as much as possible. And what I've learned so far from that is that I just get more and more interested every time I learn something new. I haven't been turned off to it yet. Um, and I'm also thinking um, about going to school in D.C. because there's lots of opportunities for me to intern with the State Department and um, private companies there as well. It sounds like you're fueled by passion. I am. I think that if you if you don't passionately love what you do or what you want to do, then you're not in the right profession. In your personal branding paragraph you wrote, for when I was very young, my parents instilled in me the philosophy of never backing down from a commitment or challenge. Because of this, I always keep my plans and follow through. What if you find out that you made an erroneous assumption and may need to change your plan? How do you feel about that and how flexible can you be? Well, and it's it's funny you'd ask that. You know, my dad, from when I was very young, I, I basically grew up with him telling me about, you know, uh, the percentages of, of people that change their majors more than twice in college. Uh, so I basically grew up, you know, sort of planning for that, for the possibility of me, you know, deciding to completely change my major once I get to college. Uh, so basically... My plan now is to major in what I want to do, so international relations, but with a focus. So maybe international business or international law or international communications, something that if I suddenly decide to become an attorney, I'll already have a background in, say, international law. And I also plan to minor in something that is completely different, such as uh, journalism or communications or business, something that can help me in a lot of different fields. If I get out of college and decide to completely change my career path, it, my college experience won't have all been for nothing. The other thing going for that is me taking languages. That can help me in a variety of different fields. And it's always I feel like it's always good to know languages, even if your job doesn't require you to know them. Uh, so basically, you know, I, I hope for the best, but I plan for the worst. I'm an, an, optimist, an optimist at heart, but a, but a pessimist in mind. Aha. Uh-huh. But I think you're an optimist, but you're, I believe you're a realist because you recognize that it is possible for you to change your mind. And if, in, uh, fact, yes. yeah, if in fact you do decide to change your mind, it would be good to change it earlier rather than later. Uh, physicians, for example, and attorneys frequently go through a lot of schooling and then find out that those professions are not the right fit. So I would suggest that you figure out as early as you can what really is the right fit for you so that you can proceed to something else should you need to do that. Yes, that, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, um, if if that does happen and I do need to change it, hopefully I figure it out out sooner rather than later. Good. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me that you have the flexibility as well as the analytical skills to figure that out. So in essence, you're going to need to create a new blueprint of the right yes. fit. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Earlier in the show, I discussed the impact of my right fit method on adults. 
My clients say that I transform them. I say that they change their behavior and transform both their personal and professional lives. I visualize teenagers and young adults using my right fit tools and transforming themselves, becoming self-confident, creating a strong, healthy inner voice with positive self-talk, making right fit decisions, using blueprints to define right fits, raising the bar to compete with yourself to achieve specific goals, and writing a personal branding statement to articulate the essence of who you are. Lucy, after we decided that you are the right fit guest for the Win Without Competing show, you read my book, Win Without Competing. What did you confirm about yourself, and what did you learn? Uh, Well, one of the major things that I confirmed, and really that I learned as well, was how much I used the blueprint methods in, in real life. Um, and, and that's in my personal and educational life. You know, before the book was even, was even published, I was I was using these blueprint methods without even thinking about it. You know, it was the way I was raised. It's what I grew up seeing and learning about. And it, it's the way that I've learned to, you know, deal with everything and be able to prioritize everything. Um, also, the what I learned is the, the positive self-talk um, which is coupled really, I think, with you know raising the bar to compete with yourself. I do, I definitely do that. You know, if you work really hard to get an A in that class, and then you get the A and you think, okay, now I'm going to get a higher A, or okay, now I'm going to go and get an A in the other class that I'm having trouble with. And I think that positive self-talk really helps to meet those goals that you're setting for yourself. Generally speaking. Uh, the people that I'm meeting that are having a lot of issues, the young people, uh, the, the self-talk is negative, that they're telling them things, themselves things that um, really prevent them from functioning in a healthy way. And that relates back to self-confidence because the self-talk should build your self-confidence and basically help you be successful. If the self-talk is negative, then it's going to hold you back from success. So do you find that throughout the day, when you're encountering situations that may not be always to your liking, that you're still able to engage in positive self-talk? I would definitely say so. And this goes back to more my mother's style of teaching. You know, she taught me to uh, prioritize and to rationalize and just take it day by day. You know, you can't plan what happens three weeks from now. You can only plan what's what's happening today. And I've definitely used that that mantra. And if, if I'm in a very stressful, you know, let's say very stressful position at school, I have multiple projects and exams um, due on the same day. You know, it's definitely on, on the on the surface, you know, somewhat depressing. But I definitely use positive self-talk to kind of, of try and motivate myself. And I think about the positive things that I'll get out of doing this. And I'll think about, you know, maybe I have fun plans for the weekend. Maybe I'm working at the market that weekend. You know, I'll think about something fun that's happening after I take the exam, after I finish the project. And that coupled with, you know, my parents' support and, you know, raising the bar with myself, um, that that's really how I think I get through stressful situations. That's good advice. After you read the book, I then asked you to write a personal branding statement from which I've read. How did you feel after you read what you wrote? Um, looking looking back at it, I definitely felt, you know, more put together. Um, I basically had a clear understanding of who I was and what my plan is from the future. Uh, I realized I had it a lot more together than I originally thought I had. Um, and, you know, looking back, I, w- I was basically able to, you know, see myself on a piece of paper, and then I, I was able to, you know, to edit myself, basically. Um, and I-, I love to edit, so... <laughs> I, I was definitely able to 
you know, kind of see what makes me tick on a piece of paper because of reading the book and using the blueprint methods. Um, and, and definitely in my personal brand, there were many hints at blueprints from your book that were just embedded in my brand that I'd put in there without even thinking because that's, that's just the way that, that I approach situations. And just think what the future is going to bring in terms of blueprints because – you'll then be building more blueprints throughout your life here as you continue to figure out right fits and find them, correct? Definitely, and I'm already in the habit of it, so it should be fairly easy. Terrific. Well, you realize you're using the standard of the right fit and not the standard of best. You're making decisions by matching to your blueprints. You're asking the question, who is the right fit? or what is the right fit, you're not asking the question, who is the best or what is the best? Yes, definitely. I try to to stay away from that. I I try not to compare myself to the perfect standard or to another student. Good, good. Going further, uh, the last chapter of my book talks about the personal life. What are your thoughts about your personal life as an adult? What do you envision for yourself? Um, I definitely want to put my career first. Um, what I mean by that is I, I do I do want to settle down, you know, have a family, a husband, um, a few kids, but I don't want to do that until I've gotten to a point in my career where I feel comfortable. Because I feel like sometimes if you marry young or you marry when you still have a job and not a career, you're more likely to sacrifice and to compromise uh, your career once you start a family. And, you know, I, I know which things I'm willing to compromise on and which ones I'm not. And one of the things I'm really not willing to compromise on um, is, is my career because I, I take it very seriously. And I figure I'll take it even more seriously when I'm actually in it. Um, and, and because of that... I definitely want to get to a position where I feel secure before I start looking for that family. Uh, Not to say that I don't want a family, but just to say that I I will focus on my career first. Wouldn't it be wonderful, Lucy, to hear from teenagers, young adults, and their parents? Definitely. To talk about situations, definitely. I feel like I could offer some good advice. Well, I think together we could offer some good advice. What do you think? I agree. I agree because I think that I think that teenagers use at least parts of the right fit method more than they think. And if they were if they could realize through talking with us how they use it and if we could, you know, modify how they use it, add to how they use it, I think they could be really successful. They can also learn more about personal branding and branding themselves for a job that they might have in mind. There's all kinds of interesting things that they could learn. If you are a teenager or young adult who naturally uses my Right Fit method or would like to learn that method, please email Dr. Barrow, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O, at without competing.com or call my office 310-443-4277 to arrange a time to speak with me. My company, Barrow Global Search, is based on the west side of Los Angeles on Wilshire Boulevard adjoining UCLA. If you have specific questions, that you would like to submit for discussion on Win Without Competing, please email them to drbarrow at winwithoutcompeting.com. To call in and ask your question on the show, please state that request in your email. I have invited Lucy to join me to respond to your questions. We welcome questions from parents. To learn more about my Right Fit method and make it yours, read Win Without Competing, nominated for a Business Book Award, 
available on Amazon. Use my app, I Brand You for Hire, Rate Your Brand Zero to Hire, available at the App Store, go to iTunes, or winwithoutcompeting.com. If you don't have an iDevice, go to the winwithoutcompeting.com homepage for the solution. Listen to all my radio shows, which are archived, including this show. To do that, go to iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, or drbarrow.com. That's D-R-B-A-R-R-O.com. Read my blog on Blogger. Visit my press room for our latest communications. Go to the press room page on winwithoutcompeting.com to link to the press room. Learn about my company, Barrow Global Search, Inc., at barrowglobal.com. Join me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and I'd love to join with you. Say this mantra daily. Making right fit decisions is the key to my personal and professional success. Thank you for joining us on the 80th episode of the Win Without Competing show. And thank you, Lucia, for sharing your wisdom. Goodbye for now, Dr. Arlene.